Acts 21, if you want to get your Bibles, you can go up there. If you need a Bible, there's some paperback ones under the welcome space. You can just help yourself, take it with you. I uh, would love for you to, to have a Bible to refer to. But we're going to see in some of the lines from that song, when suffering awaits us, your grace, it overtakes us. The cross is worth it all. This idea that, that, that we're going to see that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, accepting what God had for him there. We're going to see Paul do that again today, setting his face towards Jerusalem. Um, and just this spirit of, Lord, let your will be done, uh, your kingdom come. And that's what we're going to be unpacking today in Acts 21. And so we left off last week in Acts chapter 20. Uh, they were in Miletus. This is a city near Ephesus on their coast. And Paul is returning from his third missionary journey. And he loves the church in Ephesus. And so since they're so close to uh, that area, Paul just has them come over. And they're just uh, able to pray and minister together to tell him goodbye. And he tells them in Acts 20, this will be on the screen, he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He tells the Ephesian leaders this, and we see from the text last week that Paul, as Nick was preaching, Paul is just a good shepherd. His motivation is to make the gospel known, to love people well, and he's willing to take on whatever imprisonment and afflictions await him. And he tells them, my motivation is not comfort, it's the gospel, to make the gospel known, to, to communicate that love for, that God has for others, communicate that through me. And it says in verse 7 that when they heard this, they all wept and embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. And so God is calling him to something, and he's going to sail onward. Now, we have a map here. This is a... Uh, you can see he's kind of, as we continue on our study today in Acts 21, it's going to be mentioning a lot of little towns as he is going back to Jerusalem. Rest assured, that is the destination from Acts 20 that God's saying, hey, I'm taking you there. And so we see that in verse uh, chapter uh, 21 of Acts, verses 1 through 3, it says, when they part from them uh, in uh, Miletus up there, they go along. And they come by the Strait of, of Kos, and next go to Rhodes, and then Patara, and the ship crossing to Phoenicia. And so they're sailing along, uh, and then finally they end up in Tyre, there north of Jerusalem, is kind of where they're ending up. And so Paul is coming back from this third missionary journey, and when he was in uh, Macedonia, Greece, I believe at that time he's collecting uh, an offering from those people to take back to Jerusalem with them, because they had experienced a pretty severe famine. And so he's coming with a gift to really bless the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the destination. This is the, the capital city of God's people. God gave them this land so many years ago. And he said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And so it's there that the temple uh, was at, that they would worship. And, but now Jerusalem, the whole Jewish region, they are a conquered nation. Rome is under control at this point. They still get some religious freedom where they're able to do some things, but they're a conquered people. But that doesn't uh, quelch their national pride, their religious pride that they have. And understandably so. It was their ancestors that, that saw seas just turn into highways, that they were able to walk on dry land, that God parted that before them. They saw 
saw the walls of Jericho come down. God had given them this promised land, and then he goes on to give them prophets and give them the law in which to, to live by. So it's understandable that they would be fairly hostile towards anything that came against their religion. And the Jews thought Jesus was against the laws of Moses, was against their teaching. And the reality was that Jesus was the fulfillment of it all. But rather than trusting him as Messiah, they crucified him. And Paul is heading there. It's in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. It's there in Jerusalem that the first followers of Jesus were established. Only shortly thereafter, to have Stephen be the first follower of Jesus who was stoned to death, martyred for his faith in Jesus. And Paul knows about the persecution of those that claim Jesus better than anyone because he was the one dealing it out originally. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. And so it doesn't take a real spiritual gift of discernment here to figure out what might be waiting him for him in Jerusalem. But the Spirit revealed to him, anyways, hey, imprisonment, affliction is going to await you there. And so we continue in our uh, text that what God had revealed to Paul, he's going to reveal to others. And in verse 4, it says this, And having sought out the disciples their entire, we stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, time out. <laughs> the Spirit is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem, but the Spirit is telling others to tell Paul to not go to Jerusalem. Is it like the Holy Spirit confused? Can't make up his mind? Like, what do you want? There, it presents this problem. We see this as like, the Lord's telling me to divorce my wife. You're like, I don't know if that's the Lord. Can we talk about that? Like this, there seems to be some confusion. This is in opposition. What do you make of that? Well, the answer is in our text. As we continue studying on, we're going to see that he continues to move through those regions. And then in verse 10, while they were staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Agabus takes Paul's belt, which that's a fun moment, like, <laughs> like takes it off and wraps himself up. And he's like, this is what happens. He wasn't saying, Agabus wasn't saying, don't go. He was just saying, if you go, this is what's going to happen. The friend's interpretation of that in verse 12, they interpreted that meeting that if that's suffering awaits you there, don't go. What I'm saying is the Holy Spirit was revealing the same things to Paul and his friends. So the revelation was the same. It was the interpretation that was different. Paul interpreted, that's God's will. He's calling me there. They saw suffering, and they said, well, therefore, you mustn't go. It was a wrong conclusion that they drew, that suffering must not be from God. And that conclusion is still drawn today by many because the understanding is this. Well, if God is good, he's our heavenly father, what father doesn't want good for his kids. No father would want their kids to suffer. Therefore, God wouldn't want us to suffer, period. Well, it's pretty sound logic. 
until you consider the life of Jesus, the Son of God, who God said in Isaiah 53 that it was prophesied that, that he would be, it was God's will to have Jesus crushed for the sins of the world. That God allowed something that seemed as suffering, which it certainly was, to bring about eternal peace for all that would trust in his name. God used suffering in that moment to do something much greater than we could comprehend, that they could comprehend at the time. And so God does use suffering to accomplish his will. And so if that's what's true for his son Jesus, perhaps his sons and daughters of him, God still wants to perhaps use trials, use suffering to advance the gospel. And sometimes just telling people of the suffering of Jesus isn't enough. Sometimes God's call is to actually get to display Jesus through suffering well. Missionaries have said, it's the blood of the martyrs that softens the soil sometimes in these countries. Let me tell you a story. In the life of our church, Jeff and Leah Cox are members of Anthem, a sweet couple, and God is really laying on their heart a specific nation, a Muslim nation that's pretty anti-anything Christianity. And God is laying that on their heart that they would consider moving themselves and their two boys halfway around the world to serve as workers in this country. Jeff, every Monday, uh, he texts me and says, hey, pastor, how can I pray for you? Cordial thing. It's like, okay, here's the thing. How can I pray for you, Jeff? And we started interacting. Uh, uh, it was just like two or three weeks ago. Jeff's like, hey, you could pray <laughs> for the workers, our friends that are in this country. See, they can't be there under the, the banner of like, Christians, missionaries, those things don't fly because of the country. So they're there for tourists, and they have to do visa runs every so often where they have to go to another country, spend a few days there, and then they can kind of come back as tourists in this country where they're trying to do this work. And on their most recent run out of the country, they left their apartment, left their things, went and spent a day or two, and then when they were trying to come back into the country, uh, they weren't allowed to. And the reason they weren't allowed to is because they found out that they were Christians seeking to tell people about Jesus. And so they've been barred from reentering the country and continuing the work. And so he's like, you can pray for them. Thankfully, they weren't in prison or killed or anything like that. They're just locked out uh, of this work that they've been doing for a number of years. And I'm hearing this as a pastor. <laughs> studying this text, I'm like, Jeff, are you sure like God's calling you there? Because that seems a little ludicrous. He's like, well, they're kicked out, but we probably still get in. I'm sure it'll be fine. And just like faith, and, and I'm like, Jeff, like what is going on? Like why, what are you thinking? And it's not a naiveness on Jeff's part. This is genuinely his response to me. He says, the people in that country have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than they do of hearing the gospel. When I wanted to learn, there were people available to help me. But there, there's no one to tell them. It's not a matter if they've rejected or believe. It's a matter that they haven't even heard. And he goes on to quote me, Romans 15, 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Jeff is motivated out of love for these people 
and a desire to see the gospel advance. And so like Paul, like Jesus, he understands what God is calling him to and wants to set his face in that direction and understands that sometimes sharing the gospel might be living it out on display as we endure suffering. And as individuals, as a church, the day we stop clinging to the gospel and we start clinging to comfort or security is the day we can just close the doors. Because Jesus said, if you want to try and save your life and persevere by doing those things, you're going to lose it. And if our church is motivated by security, comfort, and the things that we want to measure as success, and we're not motivated by the gospel and stepping out in faith and doing what God would have us do, so you're going to try and save your life, you're going to lose it. But it's when you lose your life, when you open up and say, God, anything you want, anywhere, anytime, that's where you're going to find it. And Paul is living that out. Suffering and sacrifice mark the life of Jesus Christ. It ought to mark the life of his followers as well. And so suffering is often a part of God's will. Not always, but often a part of God's will. Embrace it and make the gospel known through it. His friends, are, Paul's friends are saying, don't suffer, don't suffer. And Paul's going to double down in verse 13 as we continue, saying, oh, suffer? This is Paul, I answered them. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul's saying, you're sad that I, I might suffer? He's like, I'm willing to die for the sake of the gospel. And you got to appreciate this resolve in verse 14. You understand that they're trying to persuade him, and he would not be persuaded. He's saying, this is not a democracy. It's not that we're going to say, oh, what do you think? What do you think? Okay, let's take a vote. Majority rules, not going to Jerusalem. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, my commitment is to God's will. His will be done. And I know what God is clearly calling me to do, and he cannot be deterred or persuaded from doing the will of the Lord. And I love it that their conclusion at the end of it of trying to like get him there, they're like, fine, God's will be done. It's like, let's start there, and then maybe we don't have an argument. But he gets them there. They're like, let the will of the Lord be done. I hope that the irony of this is not lost on the author Luke. Luke is, is the one penning the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel of Luke. And Luke would have been able to recall when Jesus Christ was doing earthly ministry. And then it says at one point in the gospel of Luke that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him there, yet he sets his face towards Jerusalem with this resolve saying, I know what awaits me and I'm going to do that. And we see that the, the book of Luke is actually built around that moment where Jesus turns, sets his face towards Jerusalem, and commits to that. And I hope it's not lost on him as, as Luke is getting to see this played out a second time. As Paul is saying, hey, I'll drink whatever cup the Father has poured for me. And like Jesus prayed in the garden, like, if you'd take it, that'd be great. But Lord, your will be done. And he is seeing that same resolve as Paul, like Jesus, setting his face towards Jerusalem with the same promise and assurance that was given to Jesus, suffering and trial awaits you. And here he is committed to that. I'm saying if you have the heart for Jesus, then your heart ought to be like Jesus and it ought to manifest itself in a love for other people. 
the motivation, Paul's not in this sadistic way. It's like, oh, I like suffering. Where's it at? Paul's saying, I love people. And what Jerusalem is filled with is Jewish people, of which Paul is that descent. And he was one of those that was deceived and wrong and, and motivated out of a heart and a love for them. Paul is willing to go back and proclaim the gospel. What is God calling you to? This would be a question. And I think the answer to that is unique as there is the number of individuals. What's God calling you to? Is he laid and impressed something on your heart to be about? And are you willing to, to go for that? I think a, of a college student that God really impressed upon her heart just for those in this community that perhaps are growing up in the rougher parts of town. And God just impressed on this individual's heart just a street that is known, you would see it in the news, as a street here in Columbia that's a little bit rougher. And she is just continually, faithfully, all summer long, investing in those relationships, pouring out, doing backyard Bible clubs, like loving on the people, bringing other people in. It's like, let's go over to this street and let's love on people. Just a willing resolve, not motivated by comfort or security or thinking that there's going to be some affirmation, but motivated by the gospel, perhaps seeing something of, of past that God's worked out and hurt. It's like, I want this for these individuals. Motivated by love. Others have been motivated by love to start Bible studies in their workplace. Times of prayer where they get coworkers and say, let's just hit our knees and seek God. Some of you, God's impressing on your heart, like, man, I want to get in my Bible and be saturated with Scripture, and, and this next year is the year that I'm going to read Scripture. I'm like, that's a, that's a great thing that, the God is, that God is working on your heart. I would just say, don't do it alone. In fact, it was really fun. I did a short like New Testament reading plan with some of the guys in my connection group, and I invited my family, and to which my youngest sister said, I'll do that with you. And I was just back home uh, this weekend, uh, and she said, hey, I'm not saying I'm not I'm still reading my Bible, but having that accountability meant a lot. When are we starting again? Man, if you're impressed on, like, I should read my Bible, I'd say don't do it alone. One, you have better odds of actually finishing if you got some accountability and just the opportunity to bring somebody else into it. And my sister, she's such a sweetheart. She read, this is just free information if God's laying this on her. She has two uh, little kids, just had their third, actually, but the first time she kind of read through scripture uh, was this last year with us. And she took a Bible with her oldest kid uh, in mind and actually took notes in the Bible. That way she can hand it to her son when he got a little bit older. That makes me tear up just thinking of that. Just like that intentionality. It's not just for her, but, and it's not just for me to do a Bible reading plan, but bringing others in. What is God calling you to? I know people that are working towards being reverse tithers. Not thinking of, of giving 10% and living off of 90, but are actually actively working to live off of 10% and give 90. Seeking to give thousands, if not millions of dollars away in their lifetime to just see the kingdom advance. And here's the thing. When I hear these things and I'm like, what's God calling me to? Oftentimes there's things impressed upon my heart. But sometimes I mistake the goal of Christianity to be simplified as be a good attender, and just don't make any mistakes. If you attend, and you're present, and you just don't screw up, it seems like that's oftentimes what we applaud is like Christianity. Like, just do that, and everybody, we're good. Hey, can you imagine a basketball team that their goal 
is to be present and not screw up, not miss any shots. What you would have is a team that inbounds the ball and somebody just holds it. Because as soon as you shoot it, there's an opportunity that you might miss. It's like, I don't want to miss. If the goal is to just like not screw up, well, you would inevitably like screw up. You'd score zero points and you would look really foolish hugging a basketball in a corner. But, but the reality is like if the goal is to not screw up, why would you take shots? Why would you take opportunities? Because in doing so as Christians, if the goal is to just not mess up, why put yourself out there and take these opportunities? Because you're going to open yourself up to criticism. There's a possibility that it might not go as you planned. You could go and you could invite your coworkers to a Bible study and somebody might say no. You want to subject yourself to that? And so I get baited into this thing. It's like, if you just want to just play it safe, that would be, and, and I just want to, it's so conflictual to what we see in Scripture where the goal is not to be motivated by security, not motivated by comfort, but motivated out of love for God and love for others. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, yeah, we looked at Matthew 10, 39. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But he said just before that in Matthew 10, 28, he said, don't fear man, fear God. <laughs> That's who you should live in fear of. And that fear ought to drive you to action, to response. It's a healthy fear. Are you willing to step into something with a level of unknown or even with a level of known? Are you willing to step into something knowing that you might be rejected? I can't answer that for you. I can only urge you that I do believe from experience that's where joy is genuinely found when we advance the gospel in those ways. And so we continue in our narrative in verse 17. Paul's willing to step out there, but he's not doing it alone. In verse 17, it says, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. They're coming around him. And we're going to see to the extent they start swapping stories and stuff like that. But he's, he's not doing it alone. Luke is with him. He's got traveling companions. Moreover, are, they're bringing something to the relationship to Paul. And then he's blessing them as well with the, the words he's speaking, with this offering that he's being, bringing back to Jerusalem. What I mean by this is, is Christianity is not just some, it's just about you and your relationship with the Lord. It ought to overflow. Our lives ought to be intermingled. Meaning if Jeff and Leah Cox go to that country, then we ought to be going with them in prayer, with our finances, supporting them. The illustration that has been used to help me understand this is if you can think of like a well. I know you don't see them around a whole lot, but just a big hole in the ground at the bottom of his water. Somehow Timmy fell into it and Lassie had to go bark and help save him. That, that kind of well. You can imagine Paul is like, okay, there's somebody that's down in that well. I am willing to tie the rope onto me and go down in there. However, there's another person that needs to hold that rope and lower me down. This is, this is a partnership. Who's more important? The one lowering him down and helping raise him back up? Or the one actually going down in? It's a trick question. Like you need both of them to actually go down and get that lost person. Meaning, so Chris and Rachel Kurtz are considering adoption. And when Chris looks at me and says, hey, we're willing to do this. Are you willing to hold the rope for me? Are you willing to help financially? Are you willing to help in prayer? What ought to be the response? 
It's like, yeah, because like, you guys want to adopt a kid? You guys want to go to a you know, Muslim country? It's like, I, I don't know, but I'll support that. Like, we need to be, there needs to be a level of inter, to, interdependency because we can get more work done together as the body, working together, use our gifts to build up the body. Another way to think of it is like this. If you do not need others in your life or no one else depends on you and, and, and looks to you, you can go through and you don't need other people and other people don't need you, you perhaps are living a my will be done mentality. If you don't need others and, and they don't need you, because if we're trying to serve God's will be done in a God-sized vision, we're going to need other people to come along with us to help accomplish that. If the primary motivation is God's will, we're going to need the commitment of God's people to accomplish that together. And not in, I'm not trying to say in some way like, oh, Jesus isn't enough. We need, no, understand that like, yes, Jesus is enough for our salvation. But as followers of Jesus, what he says is that we're going to be one body, many different parts, working together to advance the gospel. And through that, yeah, we can go to that foreign country. We can see children get adopted. We can see the parts of that city being reached as we work and pool our gifts, our talents, our resources together to accomplish the advancing of the gospel. That's how this works. And so if you can get through a week, a month, without anybody needing anything from you and reaching out to you for prayer or support or anything like that, and you don't need anybody else, I don't think you've arrived. I think you actually might be missing it. I would just want to warn that caution that arriving isn't uh, getting to a spot where you don't need relationships. That's how somehow you've matured to that level. And we see here that Jesus was bringing people along with him. Paul's bringing people along with him. Uh, and, and it ought to be because we're one body, many different parts, those parts ought to be working in concert with the body. And so Paul has community surrounding him, and they receive him gladly. And we see in verse 18, on the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders of Jerusalem were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They start swapping stories. Paul's up in Greece where all these Gentiles were, and he's like, this is what God's doing. Let me tell you about Lydia. Let me, this jailer, okay, get this scene. Like, jailer, we're singing hymns. And, and so they're telling stories like, what? That's crazy. And they're like, okay, guess what's happened amongst the Pharisees here? The, the, these law people, they're trusting things, and, and they start swapping stories of what's happening amongst the, the Jews in Jerusalem, and they're just sharing stories, and I imagine just having a ball, glorifying God for all he's done. And so that's what's happening with these friends. But they're telling them about what's happening amongst the Jews, and at the end of verse 20, he says, man, they are zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They're certainly going to hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. So time out. 
there's a rumor mill that exists even back then, right? And there's these rumors going around that Paul is telling uh, all the Jewish people that all their ancestral stuff, all the things that, that God had done before, that Jesus isn't the fulfillment of it, but he's just abolished it all. It's all worthless now, which is not what he was saying. That's not how he was living his life. He was just saying, oh, this stuff was meant to point towards Jesus. And now we have Jesus, let's worship him. In other words, Paul is not anti-Jew. He just very pro-Jesus. But there's these rumors being started, and they understand that it could cause some confusion in the hearts of these people. And Paul, while passionate, does not want his passion to get misdirected. He has a level of consideration and compassion for them. And he wants to bear with the weaker brothers. And so he's not going to allow there to be stumbling blocks put in place by his actions. And he says, okay, what do I need to do in order to, to keep the main thing the main thing? I'm here to advance the gospel, to love people. And if there's something that I can do that doesn't create a barrier for them, like, let's do that. They said in verse 23, well, we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in the way that which you uh, would have been told about you. But do you yourselves also live in observance of the law? But as for the Gentiles who believe, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what is uh, sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. What they're saying is, he's like, hey, the Jewish people here, James and the elders, they're like, we helped you out with the Gentiles. The Gentiles were confused, and we wrote a letter in verse 25 just clarifying, hey, don't do this, Jesus, you're good. You don't need to get circumcised. You don't need to do that. It's, it's a matter where your heart's at. And so they're like, we helped you out in some regards. We wrote you a letter to help clarify and keep the main thing the main thing. Help a brother out, and could you help us keep the main thing the main thing by doing these sort of things? Now, Paul could have probably made, made us think about it and said, like, really? Shaved heads? purification. You know, the only thing that makes our hearts pure, right, is Jesus and, and kind of gone there and, and kind of been right, but perhaps gone about it the wrong way. But instead, Paul wants the gospel to be the most offensive thing, not his actions. And rather offending people with his actions, he wants the truth of the gospel to be the thing that's most offensive. Saying that principle, you're probably going to have the opportunity to live out when you go home over Thanksgiving. Likely, within your family, there's somebody that's either a young believer or somebody that doesn't know Jesus altogether. And how that manifests itself is in uh, the broken words that they say, the positions they hold, the passions that they act out on. Some of you are like, you know my family. I'm like, yeah, okay. Like brokenness comes out in those ways. And it's right to be bothered by those things. However, the bigger problem is that if they do not know Jesus, the bigger problem than the words and those actions, the bigger problem is that they're going to spend eternity apart from Jesus in hell. Do you want to correct, correct the behavior? Or I'd say like this, do you want to win their soul or do you want to win the argument at Thanksgiving? 
Like, do you want to win the argument and be right? Like, okay, fine, uncle, I guess I should believe this or do that. Or do you want to see them have a relationship with Jesus? Because the reality is, is if their souls get won to Jesus, a lot of times the behavior is going to follow or flow from that. But oftentimes I can find myself, it's like, well, I just kind of really want to win an argument. And that's, I think Matt's been encouraging us. He's like, don't sacrifice your witness, especially in this time where people want to have arguments and, and want to create division. Saying the bigger thing is that we would make Jesus known. In some regards for me as a pastor, my unofficial goal for much of 2020 has been keeping, working hard to keep the gospel the most offensive thing about me and about our church. That I wouldn't let division get created by all the things that kind of keep coming up, but that the gospel would be the most offensive thing. And it's been hard work, but I want that to be the thing that, that drives people away. Not these secondary or third kind of tertiary issues, but the gospel to be the thing that is most offensive. I want to win souls and trust that behavior is going to flow from that. And so Paul, we see throughout the text, he has this willing resolve. Even if it means suffering, he's willing to go there. And he's going to work really hard to jump through what I would say these hoops in order to not be offensive to anybody in Jerusalem. And here's the, this, this part is hard in the, the text for me. Even with all that, him doing it so right, bringing a gift, like doing everything right. People are still going to make assumptions, get mad at you, and call for your head. And that just starts to break my heart because I have this false hope I cling to that's like, if I do everything right, if I, if I kind of meet people, their needs, and if I do everything right, there's going to be peace and love and harmony, and it's just going to go well. And what we're going to see in the narrative is like, ah, that's a false hope that you're clinging to. That wasn't true for Jesus, wasn't true for his followers, Paul included. It might not be true for you. Haters are going to hate. Taylor Swift had it right, okay? Like, there's just going to be a level of frustration because of the sin in people's heart. There's, even if you do all the things right, it doesn't mean that it's going to go well. And so we see Paul doing all this in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, clear back up in the Ephesus area, see him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this place. So they previously seen him with these guys. It wasn't true that he brought them into the temple. But they assumed and supposed, it says in verse 29, supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, close enough, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune and the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, <laughs> ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, thank you, and the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and inquired what he had done. And some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And it could not be learned the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually, Paul was actually 
carried by the soldiers because the violence of the crowd for the mob and the people followed, crying out, away with him. Do you understand the frenzy that gets created by these false accusations? He didn't bring these guys to the temple, but they thought that he defiled the temple. They, they didn't know. It was so reminiscent when Jesus set his face on Jerusalem, when he stood trial, and they could not figure out what to condemn him for. Here's Paul. He's like, why are you guys mad? Why are you beating this man? Why are you trying to kill him? It's like, uh, no one is making any sense here. And so they're like, we got to figure this out. They're not just going to let this guy get bludgeoned to death in the street. And so the crowd is so in an uproar. Again, the crowd that is receiving the massive gift that he's collected from all these areas of Macedonia, the crowd that is witnessing pay for these other guys to take a vow, to do things right, like by the book. That crowd is so against him that the soldiers have to, did you see that, carry him and keep him up in a way so that they don't grab hold of him and beat him to death right there. Even when you work hard to love people so well, to make the gospel the thing you lead with and lead out in that way with your family, with your church, with your friends, even when you're motivated by love, motivated by the gospel, even then, people are going to wrongly assume, wrongly interpret, and mistreat you. And that just bums me out. <laughs> it really, and especially in a time like this where there's already challenges and hardships and the fact that, that perhaps... Even people of God, as they're supposed to be in Jerusalem, are where you're going to face some of the greatest opposition. Really? In Jerusalem? Yeah. Really in the church? Unfortunately so. It should not be like that. But if it was true for Jesus and true for Paul, like I think the thing that God's been working on my heart, he's like, are you going to, just embrace that. And is your hope in circumstances or is it in me? And can you have peace even when things are, trials are there and exist? And moreover, when those exist, can you see that actually that's an opportunity to make the gospel clearly known? First Peter 2 would say it like this. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he's saying there is that your good works would go before you in such a way that when they try and speak evil, when they try and say, oh, here's this accusation, it just wouldn't stick. It didn't stick with Jesus. It didn't stick with Paul. Let it not stick with you that you would lead out with love that when people come at you and, and want to say all these things, it can't stick because your good deeds have glorified God. And then in the end that they would say, ah, oh, and there would be a brokenness and a conviction that comes from that when they're saying all the anger is actually due me. I was, you, were the, you were the recipient of it, but if I looked in the mirror, it's actually me that I'm mad at. And time and time again, we've seen testimony after testimony where God breaks people in that way because believers cling to Jesus, endure suffering well, honor God through it, and through doing so, the gospel is put on display, not through the words, but through the, the life lived. 
where people get to see Jesus in that moment. And what a powerful testimony it is to the hope that we cling to. Some of us are going to get that opportunity. Starting this week with Thanksgiving, perhaps with family, some of you are living in that. And I would just say, don't lose hope. Keep proclaiming the gospel with the life, letting the good deeds go before you. And again, knowing, like Paul, that Jesus is not calling us to do something that he hasn't already done. Specifically for Paul, Jesus already set his face toward Jerusalem before. He endured what they had for him. He's asking Paul to essentially just walk in his footsteps and endure what he endured. He's not going to ask, Jesus is not going to ask something of Paul that he hadn't already gone and done and displayed. He's not going to ask any, us to go beyond what he's already done. And so as we take communion this morning, I'm going to invite the band up. I want us to set our face towards what God's will would be, that we wouldn't be motivated by comfort and security, but we'd be motivated by the gospel to embrace what God has. And here's what I'm asking. As we take communion, it represents the body of Jesus broken, his blood shed for us. That as we take that, when we recognize what Jesus has done in terms of laying down his life, I would just want to ask the question, is there something specific that God is calling you to lay down your life, to sacrifice perhaps a little bit, not to win an argument, but to win souls, to again, be motivated by love for God and love for others. Is there something that the Holy Spirit would want to impress upon your heart even now? And so as we take communion and we think of the sacrifice of Jesus that he made for those that would trust in him, that the punishment that he received would bring peace to us. As you reflect on that this morning, would you just ask yourself, Jesus, is there anything that you're calling me to walk in where I can display the truth of this to others? I would just invite you to pray that prayer as we take communion. And when you're ready, you can stand with us in worship. But I just want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, do thank you. Do thank you for your word, which is alive and active, and just pray that you would, by your spirit, be convicting our hearts, convicting our hearts now, God, that you would um, reveal to us what you would have just by your spirit. So, Lord, we invite you to move. We invite you to work in our hearts in this time. And, God, that you would just make clear what it is you're calling us to. And, Jesus, we do just thank you. We thank you for your willingness to suffer, to take the punishment we deserve, that your body would be broken, your blood shed, so that we could be forgiven. So we just want to reflect on that and ask, Lord, fervently, what do you have for us in light of this good news? That's our prayer.